0: Welcome to the Wildlife Health Talks. This is our ninth episode introducing WDA members and their amazing work all over the world. This time I'm taking you to Knoxville in Tennessee. My guest today is Dr. Rick Gerhold. Rick is an associate professor of parasitology at the College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Tennessee and he loves all wormy and creepy creatures that parasitize on our wildlife. Welcome to the show, Rick.
1: Thank you so much, Kat. I'm so excited to be here. And this is one of my uh, highlights of of my entire um, WDA career, be able to talk to people about what I do. So thank you.
0: (laughs) Stop flattering. Anyway, um, (laughs) let's let's start with a few WDA questions as usual. When did you join the WDA?
1: Yeah, um, I joined WDA uh, right after graduating from vet school. And then I uh, took a position at the uh, Southeastern Cooperative Wild- Wildlife Disease Study at University of Georgia, and um, right then and there, I realized that was my passion, and joined WDA that year, and uh, have been a member since then. Been on, so, was on council for three years as well, which was a great, uh, a great opportunity to know people and get to see the inner workings of things. And then we also hosted the international wda meeting in knoxville in 2013 and um i was the scientific coordinator uh chair which uh was definitely an experience but one i wouldn't trade for the world
0: <laughs> nice and i did notice that you avoided mentioning a date or a year about when you became a member so people can't backtrack your age that's totally fine yeah, I I guess,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah so, so 2001 is when i became a member so that's uh <laughs> so, so yeah, I was uh let's see I was 28 then so yeah <laughs>
0: nice thanks for doing the maths for me yeah. um so let's jump into your favorite WDA related memory
1: yeah uh it's, it's a little bit of a bittersweet memory um and 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 most of the you know people been WDA for a while will know quickly why that is and so it was uh my very my second year at first year as a graduate student and my second year being at university of Georgia. Um, and I was a master's student working on Trichomonas and I went to my very first WDA conference. And, um, it was, uh, one of those things where I was kind of like super nervous, I was actually presenting. And I just felt like everyone was just going to be critiquing me. And, and I just was like, these are my heroes and people I've been looking up to. I got there, and it was quickly realized that people were just, you know, good people. And then, in the middle of one of the conferences, um, I saw someone who I had heard a lot about uh, because I went to Purdue for vet school, and she did too. And so, I walked up to her to to talk to her. And this was um, Dr. Beth Williams, and um, and she was so inviting and so engaging. And, you know, I was seeing all these other people that were like, you know, high up in the WDA that I thought, why is she not blowing me off and talking to these? But she completely gave her attention to me. We had this amazing conversation for about 20 minutes, uh, talking about everything from Purdue vet school to wildlife diseases career. And uh, just one of those things that really stuck to me about how wonderful of a person she was. And then, as everyone knows, bittersweet because we lost her and her husband tragically a few years later, Um, and so. But it's still we still have the Beth and Tom Award for those that have been stellar in their career. So, so that's my favorite memory. Like I said, bittersweet, but I I always hold that one close to my heart.
0: Oh, thanks for sharing that. That is really lovely. Let's move on to your actual work. So you're the first parasitologist that I interview on this podcast, and therefore I have to ask you: What is that fascination about parasites that, um, yeah, that grabs you? That is mostly deterrent for the rest of the population.
1: That's an excellent question. I get that. I get asked that often, and uh, I think it it's the same factor that that deters most people that engages me, and that is just the the wow so you know and i'm just always so a lot of people when they see a parasite the first three um uh, initials that come to their head is probably wtf which most people have a different meaning to it wtf for me means wow that's fascinating and so wow that's fascinating is exactly what i feel when i see that and just liking the um the ecology between the parasite and the host and the co-evolution between is just amazing. Um, I love the life cycles that have to be completed and just think about the evolution and how to happen for all those life cycles. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to explain, but I think if you think about if you, everyone could go back to when they were a young kid and someone was showing something and their curiosity exploded in them. And we've all been there. We all can remember an event that happened. That's what I get to have every day still is that, you know, curiosity. That's like a little kid having that. And, and honestly, that's what I try to get my students stop worrying about exams and grades and try to remember being a young kid and being curious. And if they can do that, they enjoy the class much better.
0: Oh that is pretty awesome yeah I, I, we need that more definitely especially in vet school that's for sure yeah. to have that more um low key approach to things nice and uh, do you have a childhood memory like something cliche for me where you were like pulling apart a snail and then like pulling out this like massive worm out of the snail and that was the moment you were like this is what i want to do in my life
1: you know uh, uh it, it- I really wasn't until later in life, you know, I I did grow up on a farm and we had sheep and goats and cattle and the veterinarian came out a few times and I remember him, you know, placing, looking in their manure and he could see, you know, what probably was Minesia tapeworm segment. And I was kind of excited to see that. And I was, and then what really I think caught me was, um, my mammology class in undergrad our professor at purdue made us do a semester project uh which is actually rather intense but i'm so glad i did it and and uh we did some work with paramiscus uh, white footed mice and the first one we caught had this cuterie bot fly and i picked it up and i saw this huge bot warble you know in the anguino area and i was like what like totally mind exploded, like an alien coming out of this thing. And I literally could not learn enough about bot flies. Um, it was just, <laughs> and it, that was honestly the, that was honestly the the veering of the fork in the road that said, I'm going to actually focus on diseases and parasites for my career. <laughs> That's awesome.
0: And yeah. uh, I have to ask this question. Have you ever willingly infected yourself with a parasite just to find out what the symptoms on yourself would be?
1: I, I have not. I, it has crossed my mind a few times, but I have not. Um, I Not to say that if I have mosquito biting me, I don't stare at it for a little bit before I smack it to, to get it off me. I do sometimes find it fascinating to see the, their uh, beating mechanism, but um, I, I have not. But it's interesting you say that because that's not totally uncommon for some parasitologists to do that. And they as to them, it's almost like a, a badge of honor.
0: i heard rumors that's why i needed to ask you
1: yeah yeah.
0: let's talk about toxo or toxoplasma gondii that is one of your well i would say one of the main parasites you study or one of many at least and uh, which species have you worked on in regards to these parasites and um, yeah tell me a bit about your work around toxo
1: yeah so uh toxo was something that I came into a little bit later in my career. Um, I did my PhD in coccidia of game birds um, and having that same ibicomplexan life cycle, toxo obviously was exciting to me. It actually kind of came out of, um, while I was in grad school, there was a big movement to, um, it's still happening, uh, have these outside free roaming community cats in Athens, Georgia. And, you know, obviously we know that free roaming feral cats are devastating to wildlife on so many aspects, but as a veterinarian, I was kind of focusing a little bit more on the diseases, particularly the zoonotic diseases and kind of started uncovering Toxo. Um, And there moving from Toxo, I came to UT, just happened to have In the microbiology department here, who's still here, I collaborate with him a lot. um, A microbiologist who does molecular epidemiology on toxoplasma transmission. But until I came here, most of his work was on domestic animals. And then I met with him and I was like, hey, you know, I'm good at finding roadkill. I'm good at going to hunter check stations and take samples. Um, If I can start getting samples and we can test them to see if they have antibodies, would you try and do? some genotyping on it and sure enough, and that was 12 years ago and we're still firing all cylinders. So um, I've worked on quite a few things. Um, mustelids, um, we're, we're doing bears right now um, and from the Great Smoky Mountain National Park as well as other parts in Tennessee, um, done bears and other location, moose, elk. Um, one of the things I'm trying to get into a little bit more is the understudied area of birds. Um, we've been doing some work on raptors and finding a relatively, um, uh, high level of seropositivity in raptors and being able to get some of the isolates. Interesting enough, we've had some ospreys turn positive, which kind of baffled me since they are fish eaters, but, um, I, I, they, they can, co- the OSS can remain in their GI tract; It can infect them, but potentially that's enough source for the and then we've been moving more into some of the wild turkeys and now we're into waterfowl. Um, and so just about anything I get my hands on, I get serum, I'm going for toxoplasma. Are there any
0: vertebrates that can not be or are not affected by toxo
1: at all? Uh, well, that's a great question. I, I guess I'll back up a second and, and realize, and I did not know this prior to start working on this is, there are multiple genotypes of toxoplasma. Um, the three main ones we have in the United States are type one, type two, and type three, or type one being highly virulent, type two being kind of mildly moderately virulent, with type three being more chronic. And all of that virulence work is done in domestic mice. So it's all kind of um, but generally when we find a type one in animal is actually causing quite a bit of disease. I guess the answer is. We know in domestic animals, cattle tend to seem to be somewhat resistant to it. We have seen it in about 50% of our elk population here in Tennessee, but we've yet to see a clinically infected animal um, with toxoplasma. They have other issues, but not toxo. And the other one that was really interesting was vultures. There was a paper we just published um, two years ago, one of my uh, postdocs. We had worked with... Uh, People in Pennsylvania, one of my good friends, Justin Brown, Kyle Van Wyatt way up there, and collecting vulture samples. And they had an extremely low level of toxoplasma serologically, which was kind of like, wait a minute, they're eating, they're eating everything that's dead. How they how they do not have toxo. Like they should have the highest level. And then doing as my postdoc did some investigation, she found that the likely reason is. The very high acidity in their stomachs to deal with the, you know, decomposing carcasses and not get bacterial infections was likely also um, destroying the toxo before it could colonize them. So that to me was kind of like a, a fascinating aha moment.
0: The so you mentioned already that cattle um, have somewhat of an immunity or at least resilience towards Toxo, but um, in general, in mammals, would the effects, the pathological effects, be similar or are there large differences?
1: There, there are some large differences. I mean, obviously, um, as you know, one of the main ones um, is you know the macropods, the wallabies and kangaroos. They you know, they're exquisitely sensitive. And, you know, the reason for that is believed is even though there's plenty of feral cats now in Australia, there there was no native felids. So there was no covolution with the parasite. Here in the native uh, population here in the US of wildlife, um, we're seeing more in the marine mammals um, lately, manatees getting infected. Also, some of our Seeing in some dolphin species, otters out, big issue for a while, still is out in California sea otters um, with some of the runoff coming out of urbanization of uh, felid feces, washing oasis down and then potentially getting um, filtered out by the bivalves that the otters then ate. So it seems that marine species are, are getting a little bit more attention these days.
0: What would be the pathology in uh, marine mammals? Do they have any specific patterns, Are they yeah. specifically prone to to, yeah, symptoms?
1: Yeah, a lot of times it unfortunately just found dead. Um, but they can have everything from neurologic impairment, um, to you know everything from pneumonia to liver lesions, kidney lesions. Um, Toxo is one of those th- uh, diseases that depending on this genotype and the host and other factors that we don't understand, it kind of does what it wants. And so where you think you have it figured out, suddenly you don't have it figured out. Um and so we're seeing just a lot of it being surveys, serological surveys, but a lot of times we're just coming across opportunistic carcasses, which as you can imagine, majority of the carcasses we never ever recover. Um, so it's just a small um drop in the bucket, but what we are recognizing is this land-to-sea or land-to-water movement of protozoa parasites that is probably only going to get worse with climate change and and large rainfall events washing you know, these microscopic protozoa oasis that do very well surviving in water, um, as well as urbanization, but more concrete, less soil to percolate. Um, unfortunately, it's probably going to be getting worse than better in the future.
0: So that sounds like um, for especially marine mammals, but also, yeah, you mentioned macropods and many other species really um, in wildlife. This can be quite a factor in their conservation status or for their conservation status. Is there any way of um, mitigating? Are there any management strategies at all that, uh, yeah, prevents the um, feline f- feline feces from, like, spreading everywhere?
1: I guess the only one that really works if we're talking about um, domestic cats is, as everyone should know, is keep your cats indoors. Um, if keeping cats indoors are not predating, they're not actually getting the zoe tissue cysts, um, which is by far the much more efficient way a cat gets infected. Um, and then if they're defecating, they're defecating the litter box and not out there. So there is one thing I would tell people is to definitely, um, you know, keep cats indoors. That is, you know, as a veterinarian, if you just have all your clients keep their cats indoors, you're doing an amazing thing for wildlife conservation. Um, not just, and not just toxo, but in so many other factors. Um, The other there are people who every so often think they can find a vaccine. Um, I know there has been some vaccine development in sheep in New Zealand. However, most of the time in wildlife, if that's used, um, it ends up causing disease because uh, because of their intercellular parasite, um, they need T cell mediated immunity to and so you can't just give dead organisms. You actually have to let them replicate a little bit inside the host. Um, so there's still people looking around it, but right now we don't have a great way um, except maybe, like I said, where we have sensitive species of wildlife monk seals in Hawaii are a good example too. I left that. I was, um, it's just really limiting cats. But if you worked with cats and outdoor cats, feral cats, you know how emotionally charged that subject is.
0: Oh, yes, for sure. And I have to That's point not. out here um,
1: yeah.
0: that it is kind of ironic, isn't it, that um, it's not just enough how devastating feral cats or like outdoor cats are in general, like the amount of birds and reptiles and all that they eat and uh, and all that. But then they also have this like devastating parasites, which ca- kills everything else that they don't reach directly. It's just, um, yeah, definitely an irony of fate here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, uh, it's very frustrating, you know, because there is a very simple way to control it. But you get into the human behavior issue, and that becomes very difficult.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Let's not go there. Too dangerous. Yeah, let's not um... please stop.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: but I have to ask you one question in regards yeah. to psychology, or like, I guess, neurological effects. And do you uh, kind of touch on that a little bit? But and I hope I don't sound too unscientific in this question, but it's just too tempting. So we know there's strong evidence, as far as I know, as a non-parasitologist, that an toxoplasma infection can have an effect on the psychology of people. Um, like I'm thinking of a higher risk to high-risk behaviour and all those things, um, jumping off cliffs for fun. Um, is there any evidence that we can see that? I mean, I know this is kind of the idea is that mice or rats are not afraid of cats, right? And make themselves presentable in front of a cat. Eat me. I'm a mouse. But um, yeah. do we see any similar behavior in other species that are affected?
1: That's an excellent question. Um, and I guess, uh, you know, the the human angle is always debated, right? You know, we obviously can't infect humans and see so everything's epidemiological. So there's some suggestions that it just happens to be that the same people who have very eccentric personalities are also the same people who have lots of cats and they get toxo. And <laughs> so it's hard to figure all those things out. But you know, you,
0: you also, sorry to interrupt, you also said that some parasitologists might be a bit eccentric. I wonder if yeah, there's a connection there as well. That, <laughs> there
1: could be, there could be. But I actually talked, I actually tested myself a few years ago and I was negative. So uh, just because I got curious, because I okay, grew that up, can be excluded then. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I can be excluded. So I try to think I'm not too eccentric, but I'm sure I'm a little bit. Um, uh what was i i lost my train of thought i'm getting old and things don't stay in my brain as the way they used to but anyhow um i would say oh i don't know what you're saying so as sort of other species um you know i don't think anyone's actually done or if they have i have not had the chance to read it about behavior effects i would not be surprised uh what i would suggest for sure is the ones having neuropathology there's obviously something there um i had actually a uh when I was at Georgia as one of the diagnosticians, someone brought me a seizuring red-bellied woodpecker um, that I euthanized and turned out to be toxoplasma. Um, it was their first report in that species. So we wrote a publication up about it. Um, but, you know, other species definitely have neurological impairment because of it, the parasite in their brain, but exactly uh, uh, off behaviors. I'd have to look into that and get back to you
0: you mentioned already that you're pretty good at spotting dead things. And uh, I yeah. guess you pick them up from the side of the road and or probably do the necropsy right there. And then I've heard stories like this from other par- parasitologists. Yeah. Well. <laughs> so you do, do you actually do a lot of field work yourself or do you mostly get samples sent to you?
1: It's about half and half. Um, we're really lucky where I am here at UT because we're an hour from the Smoky Mountain National Park um that has everything from elk deer bears turkeys you name it um and they've been really good collaboration so i do take quite a few trips down there um i also am the elk biologist for tennessee wildlife resource agency has been excellent about getting us carcasses or having us come out and do necropsies but um i do about half and half we go out at hunter check stations a lot and take a lot of samples from hunter check station. I was up in Maine this past year at my first moose hunt looking for some parasites and that was really interesting. Had an enjoyable time there. And then... How was that, a moose hunt? The moose hunt was... It was just great on so many levels. The hunters were so eager to know what we were doing. Oh, nice. The very first hunter who came in and he said you know, I hope you scientists can really help us figure out how to stop climate change. Oh, wow. wow, that's, that's a, something that's I would not expect awesome. to have heard from some hunters. But he said, you know, the winter tick is really taking a lot of our moose up here and it's so highly tied to climate change, which it is. Um, so that was just like fascinating to see that their education. And then the other biologists were great. Um, I think the thing that really got me that I had never I never laid my hands on a freshly dead moose before. I've just seen taxidermied was how, this is the wrong word, but I don't know how to say it, how squishy their nose was. Like, it was just like this, like I couldn't stop touching. It It was like, almost like one of those um, stress balls. Like it was just <laughs> so squishy. And I've had other people say that since then, oh yeah, that was the neatest thing. Um, but you know, for them to get in that aquatic vegetation and be able to do that, I can understand it, but it was such a neat thing to touch. But then I also loved getting in there, taking samples of the heart and other other things, looking for parasite um, lesions and just, and then just interacting with the other biologists, which I love.
0: Was it a pressing issue that you conducted or joined that moose hunt or was it just a general survey?
1: Um, It was, uh, it wasn't so much a pressing issue. I was very lucky to meet uh, Dr. Pauline Kamath and, and her Graduate student Elena Woods, um, who have been phenomenal collaborators with me. And um, they, obviously dealing with the winter tick and doing some other things, uh, they asked me to join Elena's um, committee, which I was happy to do. And then in the process, in Tennessee, we've had Econococcus uh, canadensis imported when elk were imported in Tennessee several years ago. And it looks like it's circulating here in Tennessee um, from some data. And we wanted to make up a serological test, but one of the things we really needed is the actual worm. And from talking to Elena, they had seen um lesions in a decent number of their moose previously. So we went up there and sure enough, at least three of them had the parasite that we were able to get the DNA. And now we're working on getting that um, DNA RNA Um, transcriptome worked out to make the ELISA test.
0: So you also work on quite a few other parasite species, and one of them has a beautiful name, Aleophora, um, which is an arterial worm, and another species who I don't even dare try to pronounce. Um, (laughs) Do you want to tell us a little bit about those? I have to say, I have not heard of them before, so I'm pretty keen to learn more.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. It's something that I uh, came in on a side project, and now it's kind of one of my main things. And so, yeah, you touched on the one, the Iliophora schneideri, which is the arterial worm of cervids. It's, it's very similar to heartworms in dogs as far as a life cycle, except instead of living in the, the heart, they generally live either in the pulmonary arteries or the leptomeninges, and they use tabanid horseflies as their vector instead of mosquitoes. Um, and then the other one often referred to as meninja worm or brain worm is Paralophastrongalus tenuous, which is a mouthful. I usually, <laughs> say, I usually just say P-tenuous and, sh- and most people do. Um, those two are really, uh, as top talked before, really highly tied to climate change on so many different aspects. Um, and working with the Minnesota DNR, um, we did a study and recognized that Billy offer was emerging and what really kind of uh, was a telling thing was people seeing moose that were doing what moose are supposed to be doing, you know, eating and foraging and all of a sudden would just fall over dead as if someone just shot them, but no one shot them. Oh, no. And then we were also seeing these cropped ears, um, muzzle necrosis, you know, and they started sending me samples thinking it was going to be tenuous um, but what we found out was Iliophora, and then it made sense because if the iliophor is in the leptomeninges, it can actually produce microfilaria that can lead to a stroke-like situation, and they call it tip-over mortality, and that's well known for moose biologists. Um, and we were actually able to find in the horsefly vectors, and so now we're working on a astrological tests for that, um, as you well said- as working...
0: Oh, sorry. sorry. Sorry to interrupt. You said it's directly related to climate change. Um, can you elaborate on that a little bit? How is
1: that? It's as related as to climate change because of the vector. You know, with the with the horse life vector. You know, getting warmer up north is able to move up into more northern regions. Um, and also, white-tailed deer can serve as the definitive host much better. And white-tailed deer are moving northward because where harsher winters previously would limit deer populations um, and allow moose to flourish. Um, Those deer populations are now able to move. And that's similar, right? With the P. Tenuous because deer are the definitive host for P. Tenuous. They don't get sick from it. Um, The the parasite lives in their meninges. Uh, Doesn't really, rarely does it ever cause them sickness, but if it gets into an aberrant host, whether it be a domestic animal or you know, our cervids, elk, moose, caribou, for lack of better terms, gets lost, it doesn't get the right signals. And instead of going to meninges, it just keeps wandering through the sea tissue of the spinal cord and brain and leads to a horrible death. of These animals becoming almost zombie, uh, unable to forage. You know, the climate change issue is with a lot of it with Iliophora is the, the movement of abandoned horse flies, as well as the movement of white-tailed deer north. Deer tend to serve as a better host for mm-hmm. Iliophora than um, other cervids, uh, such as moose and elk, where they tend to have more lesions. And very similar with P. tenuous, the same thing. Deer are the only definitive host. Um, they, the parasite lives in the meninges of deer, does not, not cause them disease. However, when it, when the parasite is accidentally ingested through ingesting a gastropod with the L3, that parasite doesn't get the right signals like it would in a deer. Instead of just staying the meninges, it crawls throughout the CNS spinal cord and brain and just uh, mm-hmm. leads to a horrible death of these animals, slow, almost zombie-like.
0: I'm really glad you haven't tried that parasite on yourself yet.
1: No, no, there, I have not. Luckily... It doesn't seem to infect anything except herbivores. Um, There is one in the same family that can infect humans um, that we're just starting to see coming to the U.S. in the south part of the U.S. Actually something that's in Australia that's called the rat lungworm or angiostrongylus canatensis. That one can go to the human brain, but luckily P. tenuous does not.
0: All right, that is a very unpleasant thought for sure. Unfortunately, we have to wrap up here. We are running out of time, but it's a shame because I would I would love to listen to your stories about parasites for hours. It's just it's just amazing. It was so interesting talking to you. Thanks so much for being my guest on the show, Rick.
1: Oh, thank you, Kat. I, I really appreciate you allowing me to do this. It's been um, like I said, a real highlight for me. And I'm um, excited to see other episodes of this show going forward. And I also would just like to reach out to any uh, young individuals, you know, whether high school, college, you know, considering this as a field. Uh, it may seem daunting, but if you take one day at a time and you know have persistence and a good mentor, you'll get to where you want to go. Just um, don't don't ever let your passion um, be sidetracked because of feeling you might not be able to make it happen
0: that's awesome thanks rick and i hope you're prepared for lots of emails now from from um, (laughs) students and like uh wannabe vets and parasitologists who want you as your mentor i think i think they would be lucky to have you
1: that's my favorite part of the job so thank (laughs) you and thank you so much kat it's been an honor to talk to you
0: thanks so much for listening to the wildlife health talks we will be back with a new story in two weeks bye for now